Loving Father, we thank you so much for your great love for us and how when we are prone to wander, you are the one who comes, finds us and brings us back from the distant country where we go. We pray, Father, that your great kindness would be on our mind this evening and we would be confronted again by your sheer goodness. Amen. Do please sit down. Um, I said it this morning, but I'll just, like, I'll just say it again. Um, it really is wonderful to be back at Trinity. Um, it's always a little bit like coming home for me. So thank you so much, Alan, for inviting me. And thank you so much for the way you've welcomed me. It's been wonderful to come back again. Um, but what I would like to call, I would just like to call one thing, really, to your attention this evening from the passage we read. And that is God's, God's freedom in his kindness. God is free to be kind. Because this text encourages us to believe that the God of Israel is steadfast in generosity and tender in kindness simply because he is generous and simply because he is kind. God is who God is. And that is very good news for us. So, 2 Samuel 6 to 7 is in this sort of small island of peace that comes in the books of Samuel that are just dominated by tragedy and conflict. I suppose it's a little bit like having an episode of Dad's Army in between Acts 3 and 4 of Macbeth. It's one of these, but it's one of these um, moments in Scripture where suddenly everything seems to be okay. Uh, because before this passage, we've seen the collapse of Saul's kingdom and the victory of the Philistines and David's power struggle between one of the sons of Saul. And Will spoke last week about uh, the pressures that David was under and how he waited with confidence on God because of what God had promised him. And this reminds us of what's been going on all the way through 1 and 2 Samuel. All the way through these conflicts, the emphasis has been on God's promises to David. God promised to do good to David, and so God was going to do good to David. And so by the time you get to chapter 6, when it's all settled down a bit, and David's secure in his kingdom, it's very clear that David's rise to be king is purely on account of the kindness, the goodness, the faithfulness of God. And our passage is divided pretty neatly up into three parts. Um, It's on page 310 of the Bibles in front of you. Um, In 7, 1 to 3, we've got David's security matched alongside his unease that he's in this palace of cedar while God's out there in a tent. Um, Verses 4 to the first half of 11, we've got God's response to David's implicit suggestion that he builds him, you know, a nicer house. Um, And finally, we've got God's promise to establish David, a a line, a line of kings from him, a dynasty. And this this whole passage moves with this sort of interplay between this one word, house. And it's the same word used all the way through, but it's got three different meanings. Because first we've got the personal home of David in 7.2. And second we've got the house of God in that long section through 7.5 down to 11. 
And then finally, in the second half of 7 verse 11, we've got God's promise of a house for David. And you stick all that together, and it comes out like this. God's reply to David is something like, you want to build a house for me, David? I've built a house for you, and I'm going to build a house for you. In other words, God is reminding David just whose kindness is important here. David is only where he is because God's put him there. And if anyone's going to be building anyone a house, it's God who's going to be doing the building. (coughs) And as we come at the head of this passage, um, we have this remarkably loaded phrase that would have carried a huge amount of freight for the first hearers. Um, It comes after David's just been at war, after he's conquered Jerusalem, and there's this little phrase, God gave him rest from his enemies. Because when we start out in this passage, David is safe and secure. And part of this is a political thing. It's because David's been, he's done, done some pretty shifty political footwork over the last few chapters. He's uh, conquered Jerusalem, he's brought the ark into the city, and he's, he's sort of conquered the city with his own private army. It's his city, and he's put the ark in it. He's centralising everything around himself. So it's a pretty nifty bit of politics he's doing. But on the more sort of... There's a, there's a much deeper faith-based uh, importance behind this phrase, rest from enemies. Because the first time this phrase gets used is all the way back in Deuteronomy 12... Um, when God promised that Israel would enter the land, and when they get there, God will give them rest from their enemies. And from that point on, from that point in Deuteronomy 12 onwards, this phrase becomes a sort of motif through these early books of scripture that snowballs. It gathers momentum and gets bigger and bigger and bigger as it goes through. Um, it It turns up particularly in Judges, Always in Judges, God raises up a judge and God gives them rest from their enemies. It always tends to get used after God has done something dramatic to secure Israel in the land. So what's, and what's important about that is this isn't just a historical statement to say they're at rest in the land. He's not just describing the situation. It is a statement, it is a statement of Israel about God. They're saying something important about the faithfulness of God to what, to what he has done for them. That which God says he's going to do is what God does. He is steadfast to his promises. This statement would have shouted to Israel about the kindness of their God. So all is well. God has done exactly what he would said he was going to do. But 7 verse 2 David starts to get itchy feet. He's not very happy that he should be living in this luxurious house while poor old God has just got a tent over there to live in. And now, tents were sort of at the low end of the housing market anyway. Um, But David chooses to describe it in an even more derogatory way. He, He calls it a curtain. So he effectively, he's uneasy that he's living in a palace while poor old God is covering himself in a bedsheet, is the kind of idea of the verse. And it seems a pretty justified and well-intentioned concern. And more than that, it seems a perfectly proper concern from what we read in the next bit in that kind of key passage in Deuteronomy 12. 
Because God had said after they get rest in the land, God was going to come and dwell with them permanently. So what could be more proper for this God who's been faithful to every one of his promises than when you've got rest in the land to get ready for God coming to dwell just as he said he was going to do? So God's response then. It's a pretty surprising response, because verse 5, it looks like God got a little bit annoyed by all of this. Um, all, the, all, the, all the personal pronouns, the you's and the me's and the I's, are emphatic here. The idea is, the idea is are you going to build a house for me? Um, and that, and that, and, and that for, the force of those in verse 5 rolls into verse 6, where it just starts with the I. And God lists all the wonderful things that he's done for Israel, completely unsolicited. You, you want to build a house for me? Have you not watched the last 500 years as I have systematically completed every one of my promises and be kind to you? And now you want to be kind to me? Um, now, I don't know about you, but on first reading, I found that a pretty strange response. Because all the way through the next verses, um, up to verse 11, God lists all the good things that he's done for them. So why would God, why would, why would God respond like, to, like in this way to what seemed to be a perfectly fair concern? Well, it was a, part of the reason might be um, because it was a common thing in this part of the world, in, in, this, uh, in this time, for a king who's just conquered a country or who's just come into power to build a temple or a sanctuary or a shrine or whatever they want to build, to a god to, to gain their favour in the hope of receiving some sort of longer dynasty, some sort of dynasty or longer reign or something like that. So the, the contrast was to where kings would try to earn the favour of their god in some way by, by, you know, by doing them a favour so God would do them a favour. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Now this probably isn't what David was up to. But... The God of Israel is being portrayed in stark contrast to all these other gods. And in this contrast, we learn something very important about God's character. Because this God is not one who needs to be provoked. He doesn't need to be made to respond in kindness. He's not one who gets manipulated by human action. The great, freedom, the great truth that these verses are pointing to is the freedom of God in displaying his kindness. God shows kindness, he shows faithfulness simply because God is faithful and God is kind. It's just consistent with his character. Um, now, there's a, da- there's a little bit of a danger here of drifting into some sort of, you know, a, a bit of a fidgy-widginess around God just being kind. Obviously, there are other parts of his character too, but this is the part of the character that's emphasized in these verses. He is faithful and kind, because that's just part, one of his attributes. And this reminded me of a mate of mine. Because um, my mate absolutely loves DIY, and I absolutely hate DIY. But he loves it, it's who he is, it's his thing. Um, and a bit of time ago, I brought, uh, I bought a new bookcase, and it was sitting in my room waiting to be put up. And it was one of those ones that IKEA claimed that you can put up with six screws and just a screwdriver. It's a complete lie. You need a complete handful of nails and the biggest hammer you can find to put these things on. Um, 
Anyway, for some reason, my friend loves DIY. And I came home one day, and the bookcase was just up for me. Now, secretly, I suspect him of a bit of underhanded kindness in doing this, but he did it simply because he loved to do it. It was consistent with his character to do it. And in a similar way, these verses teach us God is faithful and he is kind simply because God is faithful and he is kind. And we move forwards into the last, into the second half of God's response, starting in the second half of verse 11. So God's response we've seen is, you won't build me a house, David. I'm the one who's going to be building a house for you. We move into verse 12. After David has died, God will secure it that one of his children shall be king after him. And this son of David is going to establish a dynasty that lasts forever. Verse 13, we move into verse 14. This king is going to share a relationship of intimacy with God. And he's going to know God as caring, as a father. So much so that the favor of God, moving into verse 14 and 15, is not dependent on this king being perfect. The king will make mistakes, but this God of faithfulness and kindness is not going to remove his steadfast love from him. And this term, steadfast love, in verse 15, um, sort of denotes the persistent, insistent, incessant love of God, being focused out on David's son, just as it had been focused on David. The whole theme of the passage is pointing us to the faithfulness of God, the kindness of God, who doesn't need to be provoked into showing that kindness. He does it because it's who he is. Now, in terms of the whole story of the Bible, the importance of this promise is just immense. Um, Psalm 2, Psalm 72, 89, 132, you could go on with a number of psalms that pick up this idea, and it becomes the sort of seedbed of hope for the future. So that when everything's gone wrong for Israel and Judah and the two kingdoms are are no more, they can read this verse and see the God who has promised good in the past and secured the good he has promised because the good he has promised is in line with who he is. We can be sure that this God will be good to us again. And this is the line in which blind Bartimaeus, you know, sitting on the road to Jericho, shouts to Jesus, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. There was the expectation that the God who had promised good, who had promised kindness, would be kind again. So we're being shown in these verses that this God who promised to David these, these wonderful promises about an eternal kingdom in which we have our, in which we read forward very happily into the promise promise and the fulfillment of Christ. The God of David did not need to be kick-started into showing kindness. And this is the same God who is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who moves again to us in kindness, unsolicited and totally free and totally in line with who he is. And, another, and we're being shown all the way through that God is free to act in his creation 
the way he chooses to. And the way he chooses to here is by sheer and unsolicited kindness to David. So grace then shows itself in this passage as sort of the insistent pressure of God's goodness onto us. God will be good because it's who he is. God is good because it's in line with his character. And so to the LPAs who are moving on this week, this is the kind of passage that can fill you with such hope. Because we heard this, we heard this morning about some of your future plans as you move away from here. And this is the God who is insistent in his kindness to you. And so as you go away from these familiar surroundings, you can go with confidence, knowing that this isn't a God you need to mollify or cajole into being kind. He is the God who is kind because it's in line with his character. And also for the rest of us, things change. Everything moves and is in a state of sort of flux, and everything is scary and unsettling. And these verses tell us that God is who God is. He doesn't need to be twisted or cajoled into being kind. He is kind because it is who he is. And he will be kind. And and he has been kind in the past and he will be kind again. And we know this because through the Son, the Father has been made known of the God of complete kindness. Expressing that kindness fully in the cross and in the resurrection. Let's pray. Loving Father, we thank you so much for these promises that you made to David. We thank you so much that in the face of someone offering to do something for you, you turn it back and pour out the goodness that you have done for them in the past and the goodness you will do again. And we thank you so much that this is just part of who you are. And we worship you for who you are. And thank you that you are the God of kindness and the God of love. We thank you that we've seen that most fully in Jesus. And we ask that you would help us in some way to love as you have loved us. To show kindness where there is hostility towards us. So we thank you for who you are. And we thank you for the security and the confidence that gives us in your purposes to us. Amen.